0: All right, Acts chapter 9, take your Bible and go there with me. Hopefully you did bring it here this morning, Acts chapter 9. How'd you all sleep last night? Lovely, okay. Did anybody enjoy the 60 degree weather last night? That was that was wonderful. We slept with our windows open last night. I don't usually do that in December, but down in Louisiana you can. I'm grateful for that. All right, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be at here this, this uh Morning, I told you yesterday that we're going to continue with uh, the theme dealing with who God is. Last night we looked at the fact that forgiveness is not just what God does, but it is who he is. And I hope that you understood that that, uh, the very essence of Christ's nature, why he was born to come here is to offer forgiveness and it didn't just end at the cross, he regularly uh, stands ready to give you and I forgiveness. This morning, what we're going to be looking at from Acts chapter 9 is that God is a pursuing God. Pursuit of mankind is not just what he does, it's who he is. The very first reference that we had looked at yesterday afternoon was Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Can anybody quote that for me? Luke 19, 10. Well, let's see. Say it with me. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. When we looked at that verse, we agreed that that passage is telling us that seeking after man is not just what God does in the 40-hour work week. It's what he's doing on a regular basis. In fact, it's what he's doing all the time because he is a seeking God. And I want us to see from this very familiar but strange passage the fact that Jesus is Always a pursuing God. We're in Acts chapter 9, I would title this, The Surprising Conversion of Saul. You say, why do you call it the surprising conversion? No uh, conversion of anyone is surprising. Well, if I was God, I wouldn't have pursued Saul. But I'm so grateful that I'm not God and he's not me because he pursues anybody. Look with me starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, the scripture says this, And Saul Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee, What thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the street, which is called straight. And inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. "...to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake." If you are not familiar with this story, in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the uh, fledgling church, God is giving us in this book the miraculous movement of the the first church, being uh, God using the very first church in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and and as the gospel spreads because of the ascension of Christ and because of their risen Lord and the power that God gave them at Pentecost, the, the gospel is spreading and the religious elites... The people that crucified Christ hate what's going on. Saul is one of these men. Saul hates Christianity. He hates Christ because in his mind, Jesus Christ, that faker, that hypocrite, uh, the charlatan, Jesus Christ is, is a fake and a fraud. And in his mind, Christ's message is ruining Saul's religion. Saul, who was a chief of the Pharisees, and if you don't understand what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee is a person who looked at the Old Testament law and they basically believed they had good standing with God based solely on their keeping of the law. It was an incredibly legalistic and self-righteous system. So in Saul's mindset, the message that Christ is preaching of that of love, in Saul's mind, Christ is ruining the law, where Jesus is saying, no, my message is fulfilling the law. So Saul hates Christ. He believes Christ was killed on a cross and buried in a tomb, and the fact that the disciples are preaching that he arose from the grave is all just a propaganda story, and Saul doesn't believe it. So in Saul's mind, to destroy the followers of Christ is his highest calling so that's exactly what he's doing in the beginning of chapter 9 we're introduced to a man who is not a nice guy the scripture describes him as breathing out threatenings and slaughter what flows from the heart through the mouth of Saul is he just wants to destroy Christ followers Now, if a man like this lived in America, and there are men like this who live in America, still in this day, I do believe a man like this, if he was violent against believers, he would be jailed, incarcerated, charged with hate speech, possibly a crime. In America, we have a legal judicial system, at least as of right now, that uh, believers would be, uh, uh, from a judicial standpoint, we would be defended against a man like Saul. But not in the first century. Saul goes to the chief priests and he gets legal sanction. If, if this was in America, it would be like Saul going to the executive branch or going to the Supreme Court and, and, and receiving all the accreditation that he needs, all the authority that he needs to, and, and he could get off scot-free. That's what's happening in this passage. Saul has the legal authority to go and to incarcerate and to beat and to uh, 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 try to slaughter these believers. And so he takes those documents that he gets from the high priest and he gathers his men and they're going for a, a down to Damascus. And, and uh, I'm sure you've seen maybe picture books on this, and we don't know if he was riding a horse riding a camel if he was walking but I can imagine he and his men are on their way to Damascus just cackling with glee because we heard there's followers of Christ and we are going to deal with them so he's on his way down to persecute Christians if you were God what would you do with Saul I'd kill the miserable wretch but that's not the heart of our savior that's not why he came he came to pursue so Saul is on his way and Verse 3 tells us, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Uh, the scripture is revealing to us a light shines and it had to be a pretty powerful, magnificent light because it was so brilliant, so powerful that when it hits Saul, the, the, the glow of it and just the overwhelming aura of it, he falls to the ground. If that's off a horse, we don't know if he's standing. We don't know uh, where he, from what position he was in, but he's now on the ground looking up. He, he can't understand what's going on and he cries out and he hears a voice. Saul. No, I do not believe God was angry with Saul. I don't believe that God is, is speaking to him out of a tone of gruffness and, and, and trying to prove who's boss and who's bigger. Eat dirt, Saul. That's not what's going on. You'll often find that when someone is angry and they're uh, uh, re- referring to uh, the person they're angry with, they will often not use their name. Have you ever notice that? They, someone gets angry and they say, mm-hmm, that woman, <laughs> That boy right there, man, that preacher, they often, if you're angry at someone, you don't even want to bring yourself to use the decency of using their name. And I find here a very loving Savior calling out to him by name, referencing him by name, and he asks him a question. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, at this point, Saul is being confronted with a theological problem. In his mind, there is no Jesus Christ ascended and living. Christ, this man, Christ, is in a tomb. And now that very Christ is speaking his name. And he's not sure what to do with it. He responds in that moment. He he asks him, uh, what wilt thou have me to do? Excuse me, verse 5, he says, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. There in verse 5, we see the response of Jesus to Saul that reveals part of Christ's character. And that is, he is a pursuing God. He says to Saul, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And this is the phrase I want us to focus in on. It's hard for you, Saul, to kick against the pricks. Now, this word here in English is not a slang word. It's not a derogatory word. This word pricks, actually, uh, it is, well, let me, let me ask you. Does anybody know what the word pricks is or means? Anybody know what that is? Okay, yes, sir. Okay, it's, 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 you're on the right track, but it wouldn't be a plant. It wouldn't be something with needles or anything like that. Anybody else know? Yes. Okay, it's not needles. Certainly, pricks has the idea of a pointed edge, but that's not what the prick is referring to. Yes, sir. Okay, well, I'm looking for a very physical item. Yes, sir? Basically, like what, when Christ is trying to convict us, the, I know it's putting words on it. Yep. But. Okay, so he is revealing to us a, a level of conviction. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But what is the prick? When he says you're kicking against the pricks, does he mean like, hey, there's a briar patch in front of you and you just keep kicking into it? Is, is that what he's referring to? Is it something different? It's like a cattle prod. Okay, an ox goad, a cattle prod. How many of you have ever worked with cattle or been around cattle? Raise your hand. Okay, a number of you, all right. Uh, Did you know that cattle are very dumb animals? (laughs) Uh, Incredible, they're they're very, very habitual. Uh, They do things out of habit, not because of intelligence. If you've ever had to work with cows or cattle of any kind, in fact, well, I think, in my opinion, the dumbest animal I've ever been around is a sheep, okay, more dumb than a cow, and it encourages me when the scripture says that we are like sheep. I think we probably ought to apologize to the sheep for that one, right? But a cattle, uh, a cow, a steer, whatever it would be, a bovine, uh, the farmer, the, the cattleman would have, at least in this day, and today they still have them, except today they're electrified. But you would have what is, would have been an ox go. would be a long, maybe three to four foot stick pointed on one end. And what that would have been used is, is to drive that into the flank of the cow to get their attention, to basically say, hey, cow, I want you to go this way. And to any of the girls that say, oh, that sounds so painful, to a cow it's not painful, it's just getting their attention. My grandfather was a dairy farmer for a number of years. My dad grew up as a dairy farmer, and both of them have told these stories, uh, the, the, the things they had to do to get a hold of a cow's attention. In fact, my grandfather, when he was farming, he would always carry a nail in his pocket, and he would use that, that if he was trying to get a cow to, you know, you can b- break your hand trying to hit the back of their flank, but he'd just take that prick, that small nail, and he'd jam it into the back of the flank, and it'd kind of be like, oh, did you want me? <laughs> and that's how the cow would respond. He said, yeah, I'm trying to get your attention. Go that way. In fact, one time he told me there was a cow. He was, my grandfather was in a bad spot in the barn and a cow had gotten loose and was running right down the, the aisle, the center of the barn. and was running right towards him and my grandfather didn't have a place to go. The cow didn't have a place to go and all he could grab was a two by four and he broke a two by four across the face of the cow. It was just kind of like, oh, sorry. <laughs> and he, okay, now go that way. So the idea of a prod, a prick is the farmer is using this, the farmer who is much weaker in muscle mass than the cow, but he is using this this instrument uh, to to instruct the cow to point him in the right direction. If I can put it this way, it is an instrument for the cattleman to pursue the direction that that cow needs to go in. So he drives it into the flank. If the cow resists in stubbornness, he will drive it deeper until using those, that, that painful pressure, he will give the cow instructions, go that way, go that way, whatever it may be. So this is, what, this is the image that God is using. This is what he's telling Saul. Saul, have you felt the pressure? Have you felt the pain? Have you felt the pricks? Because Saul, I've been pursuing and you've been resisting. Now, the scripture does not say to us explicitly what the pricks are, but I think in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, we probably get an idea of what's going on. In fact, three different times in Acts, coming up to Acts chapter 9, he uses phrases like this. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching, the scripture says that the people who heard them were cut. They were were pricked in their heart. That is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I believe it was Acts chapter 5, when when Stephen is preaching and Saul was there hearing Stephen preach. When Stephen preached, uh, the men were cut to the heart. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That does fly in the face of Calvinism because unsaved, unregenerate men were feeling the conviction of Christ and they did not respond to him. I'm not trying to preach a pet message on Calvinism, but it does deal with that point. But in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 5, and in Acts chapter 7, you do see the pricking, the prodding of Christ in Saul's life. You know, Saul was there and he witnessed in Stephen's death a very unusual death, was it not? Those men of those day, life is cheap in the first century and they're used to watching people die. Of course, the Romans were good at putting people to death and I'm sure Saul has seen many men go to, die, go to their death. He's, he's seen people die. Except when it comes to Stephen. Filled with the Holy Ghost, Stephen begins to preach about Jesus Christ and he says to those leaders, look, Jesus is the Son of God and you crucified him and there those men cut to the heart, they cover their ears, they run on Stephen and they drag him out of the city and Saul is all about it. Hey, hey, you guys want to stone him? Give me your coats. Yeah, come on, guys. I'm all about it. You want to be a part of this? I'll help you. Give me your coats. And he is there consenting to the death of Saul because he believes here's another faker. Here's another uh, hypocrite who's following this faker Christ. And let's kill him. And there Stephen falls to his knees. And he looks up into heaven. And he cries out, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That flies in the face of Christ's theology or excuse me, of, of Paul's, Saul's theology, because in Saul's mind, there is no Christ who's alive, and Stephen has just declared, I've seen him, and he's risen, and he's deity. And then Stephen calls out the words that Saul likely would have heard, or at least heard the account of of Christ. In very similar phrasing, Stephen cries out, Lord, lay not this sin on their charge. Lay not lay not against them. Like Christ who said, Father, forgive them and they pummel him to his death. I can only imagine what that must have done to to, to Saul. Watching that man die, watching the witness, the testimony of a Christian, and now he is being approached, he is being uh, uh, pursued by the very same Christ, and now Saul is flat on his back with that same Jesus saying, I'm Jesus, and I've been pricking you. Have you felt it? Young people, have you ever felt the pricking, the conviction, the pursuit of the Spirit of God, all through Christ's ministry, he proves to us that he is a pursuing God. In fact, every single Bible verse that deals with the gospel, you will always find Christ initiating, God pursuing, because pursuing mankind is not just in Acts chapter 9, it's all through the Scriptures. Luke chapter 19, 10, we've quoted already. For the Son of Man, not man, For Christ, he came to seek and to save. What does John chapter three, verse 16 tell us? For God, not man, for God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. Romans chapter five, verse eight, one of my favorite verses in all the scripture has been quoted already this week. But God demonstrated, commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, not deserving of Christ, while we were sinners, Christ, he's the one that loved and died for us. See, Christ is a pursuing God. When you think, when you think about the, the ministry that Jesus had with his disciples, how, how many of the disciples came up to him and said, hey, young rabbi, we heard you're looking for recruits. Pick me. Is that how it happened? No, it was Christ pursuing the young men. Hey, I want you. Come join me. I want you to be a part of my team. I want you. Lord, don't you know he's a tax collector? Yes, I do. Come, come and join me. Hey, you over there, I saw you underneath the tree. Come and join me. He proves he is a constantly pursuing father. He pursues his people. He pursues his, his disciples. Uh, consider the parable that he gave in Luke chapter 15. We looked at it last night. Uh, we, we talked about the prodigal son, but you know all three parables that Jesus is giving to us is teaching the very exact same truth. The parable, the story of the lost, uh, lost sheep, lost coin, the lost boys. What do all three stories tell us? That Christ pursues It's the story of the the lost sheep. The shepherd has 100 sheep and he loses one. Now in America in 2022, what would we do? We've, We've got 100 sheep, we lose one, we've got 99. What we would do is we would say, well, that's just the cost of doing business, but not Christ. No, the imagery is he sets the 99 aside in a safe place and he is not willing to cut his losses. No, he is going to pursue the wayward sheep and he'll go to whatever length and whatever extreme he must until he finds that sheep and there brings that lone one sheep That we would say, it's not worth it. Just be grateful you've got 99. But Jesus says, I'm not content with losing one. I will pursue it until I find it. And he brings the sheep back to his fold. Young people, that is who Jesus is for you. And if you were the lone lost sheep, you don't have to fear that he's not going to pursue. He says, I never cut my losses. I never come to the point where I say they're too far gone. I will always pursue. The story of the lost coins. The woman has 10 coins. She loses one in the house, and she's got nine left. In America, we would say, cost of inflation, baby. (laughs) But she's not willing to do that. She sets aside the nine in a safe place and will sweep and garnish the house until she founds the lost coin, because that coin is valuable. He's trying to teach us a lesson about pursuit. A father who has lost his second-born son He cannot go to the town. He he will not go to the town and, and, and enter into the sin and the debauchery that the boy is living in. But, oh, as soon as that boy would come to himself and humble himself, the father takes off running down the road with a kiss and a hug and a robe and a ring because he's trying to prove to us, I pursue people. And we say, that's good for the gospel. I'm really glad that he did that in the gospel context, that he pursued us. But young people, it's not just in the gospel. First John tells us, do you you know why you would have any kind of love for Christ? Do you know why? We love him, why? Because he first loved us. What Jesus is telling us is, I pursue mankind always. He did it with Jonah, didn't he? If you were God and you were trying to get a hold of a man, a prophet, to go down to Nineveh to, to, to stir up a revival, or to preach for a revival. See, God was already preparing Nineveh for a revival. He just needed a prophet who would be willing to go. And he, said, he decides, I'm going to use Jonah. I want to use Jonah to go down to Nineveh. And he comes to Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, I'm doing a work down here. And I just want you to know, I want to use you to go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He takes off running the other direction. So if you were God, what would you do with Jonah? fine Uh, prophets are a dime a dozen i don't need to use you but what does god do he doesn't let the one sheep go he pursues jonah down to joppa and he pursues him onto the ship and now jonah's asleep in the belly of the ship and he doesn't uh, rebuke him for that he just sends a storm and a storm arises, and the, the ship is tossed, and the mariners are fearful. And they wake him up, and they say, hey, pray to your God. And Jonah, he knows what's going on. And they cast the lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And there he declares, I serve the one true living God. And the reason the storm is here is because I've disobeyed him. And so the only conclusion in Jonah's mind is, let me be like the lost sheep. Throw me overboard. And God says, not so fast, Buster. I've already got a fish prepared. He's been following your ship, maybe, I don't know, but God had a a, a fish prepared so that when Jonah was tossed overboard, the sovereignty and the goodness of God was prepared for him. And there Jonah's in the belly of the whale. And, and, and maybe if, you're, if you were Jonah in the belly of the whale, you're swallowed by that, that fish. You're thinking, this is the end. The fish comes, swallows you, and all of a sudden you realize five minutes later, I'm still alive. It's dark in here, but I can breathe. This is amazing. I can't believe this. And maybe you're starting to think, man, this pursuing thing, Lord, this is getting awful, awful uncomfortable. It kind of feels like you're trying to kill me. <laughs> Did you know sometimes when God pursues people, it does take them to that length? When it feels like they've come to the end of the rope and only then will they come to Jesus Christ. And so God sometimes allows some very difficult circumstances into somebody's life, not because he's trying to kill them, not because he's trying to hurt them, but actually because he's trying to pursue them. See, we often get frustrated with God's pursuit, don't we? Because we think we have a warped view of who God is. And so when the tire blows and when I break an arm and can't go to camp and I get frustrated and get angry, I say, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. Why did you allow this? What are you trying to do? And the God is saying, maybe I'm actually pursuing you. Or maybe as parents, what we do is we step in the way and we say, no, no, no. Uh, This difficult thing is going to happen to my child. And I will step in the way and I will stop that difficult thing from happening. And God is saying, don't get in the way of my pursuit. Oswald Chambers, I've referenced him before, but Oswald Chambers wrote on this point, it was very helpful to me. He said, one of the hardest lessons to learn comes from our stubborn refusal to refrain from interfering in other people's lives. It takes a long time to realize the danger of being an amateur providence that is interfering with God's plan for others. You see someone suffering and you say, he will not suffer. I will make sure that he doesn't. You put your hand right in front of God's permissive will to stop it. And then God says, what is that to thee? Is there a stagnation in your spiritual life? Don't allow it to continue, but get into God's presence and find out the reason for it. You will possibly find out it's because you have been interfering in the life of another, proposing things you had no right to propose, advising when you had no right to advise. When you do have to give advice to another person, God will advise through you with the direct understanding of the spirit. Your part is to maintain the right relationship with God so that his discernment can come through you continually for the purpose of blessing someone else. Here's what he's trying to say. Parents, if God's pursuing your child, don't stop his hand. What he's saying is counselors, when you meet and you sit down with that person and you have in your mind exactly what they need and you have the, uh, the, 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 the solution for them, make sure that your counsel you're about to give is from the Lord because sometimes we can counsel where we had no right to counsel If I believe that God is a constantly pursuing God, then the young person that I am sitting down with, I can have confidence that God has been pursuing this person. He's more interested in this person than I am. And if he's brought this person to me, then he has something for me to give. And I am to give no more and no less than what he wants to give. And then when I counsel this person, I can step aside knowing that a pursuing God is working on this person far beyond what I can do. And I can trust that counselee in the hands of God because he is a pursuing God. God. He did it with the Ethiopian eunuch, did he not? Philip, I want you to go out into the desert. But why, Lord? Because there's somebody I'm pursuing. And I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. Young people, that would change the way you pray, wouldn't it? If you believed that God was always pursuing Mankind, all around you, God is working on people. It would change the way you pray if you maybe there, there was a lady that came to me at one point and she said, "You know, I have a wayward daughter that I have been praying for for twenty years." She said, "I've gotten so discouraged and disillusioned with the fact that I've prayed for twenty years and it seems nothing has happened." She says, "I've given up on praying." She said, "But if God is a pursuing God, then it means He's still working." And this is these were her words then that means my prayer is not asking God to do something. It's joining in with what he's already doing. See, sometimes when we pray, we, we get burdened for someone. We say, oh, man, I'm so burdened for that person. Man, they need to get walk with Jesus. They need to get right with God. Oh, oh hey, God, uh, could you start working on him? instead of realizing that God's already been working on him, and your recognition of that person's need is God working in you to be a part of what he's already doing. So in fact, your prayer life is not drumming up business for God. Your prayer life is simply joining in with what God is already doing. You say, but but Brother Reed, I'm pretty sure... It can't be that simple because I'm pretty sure that, that the scripture makes it clear that I'm supposed to do the, 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 the pursuit of God. And if I pursue God enough, then he begins to pursue me. It seems like, Brother Reed, you're saying that he pursues me first before I ever pursue him. But I'm pretty sure the scripture somewhere says I'm supposed to pursue God. I mean, didn't, didn't, didn't guys write books like that about pursuing the pursuit of God? I I, I, think, I think I have a responsibility in pursuing God first. Well, the scripture does say in James chapter 4, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. You see, yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm supposed to pursue God. That's right. Okay, Brother Reed, you're starting to make it sound like it was all on God's shoulders. And I'm pretty sure I have a responsibility here. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 says, ask, seek, and knock. I'm pretty sure that I have to convince God of how much I'm really seeking him for him to reciprocate. Oh boy, okay, let's, just, let's get back to that fundamental independent Baptist hardline feeling uh, of me doing enough to convince God. Young people, that is where your dryness comes from. Consider those two passages, James chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 7. Notice who is initiating the invitation. It, it would be like this. Uh, we all know Brother Herbster... And uh, Brother Herbster, how old are you, brother? You're right around 50, is that correct? 48. 40, okay. <laughs> Let's be accurate here. Okay. okay. He, he's not yet 50. Okay, he's 48. Uh, he's not quite old enough to be my father, but he's close, maybe close to being my, my dad. I'm 30, so you're, that's 18 years older. You'd have to be married pretty young to be my dad, but uh, it's possible. They do it down here in the South, I've heard. But anyways, okay, let's just imagine, so we all know Brother Herbster, and out of respect, what do you all refer to him as? Brother Mike, Brother Herbster, Mr. Mister Pastor, whatever, okay? So we refer to him because he deserves it as the leader of this camp, as, as a senior to all of us, most of all of us, except for the Gordons, maybe, okay? So he is a, he is older than most of us, so out of respect... And honor, we referred to him as Brother Herbster, Brother Mike. Imagine with me, if, if, we, if I came into this, this setting, this is my first time preaching at Southland, my first time spending any time with him, and I came in and said, hey, Mike, that's a, this has been a great service, Brother Mike. I mean, Michael, man, you and I, this is great. We ought to work more like this. And, and, and imagine with me, all week long, I kept talking, calling him Mikey and Michael and Mike. And would that bother anybody? Okay, several of you, some of the younger ones are like, man, it's this is God-given name. Why? Okay, so I believe you ought to honor him. But uh, So most of you would say, it would bother you, me if you started referring to him as Mike. We'd start to think, man, who is this young punk who has no respect for his elders? Okay. But what if Brother Herbster had come to me and said, hey, you know, Brother Reed, you know, we're both in ministry. You, you can call me Mike. And I would say, okay, Mr. Herbster. <laughs> and he might say, no, 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 seriously, you, you, can, you can call me Mike. It's, it's really okay. Well, it would be hard for me to get used to calling him by his first name. And if ever I finally came to the place where I've referred to him as Mike, it would only be because he invited me to. Are you tracking with me? This is what James 4 and Matthew 7 is doing. God is coming to us and saying, ask me. Seek me. If you seek me, you will find. Hey, 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 girls, draw nigh, he says. If you draw nigh, I promise you, you will find. If you, I'm inviting you to ask, to seek, and to knock, because if you do, you are going to find me. See, no mortal young person, no mortal man would ever think in his mind that you as a, as a, as a sinful person could, could talk to a divine and holy God like he was a friend. No mortal man would think that unless God invited us to. And so he tells us in James chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 7, he's trying to reveal to us, he says, I have the wealth of my person, the wealth of my relationship is ready, and I'm just telling you, if you ask, it's ready for you. So let me ask you, even in those passages, who's doing the pursuing? Christ is. He's always pursuing. Boy, that would change the way you confess, wouldn't it? We talked last night about confessing to Christ, asking for forgiveness. But even in that, sometimes we think that we have got to go get a hold of God and ask him for his forgiveness instead of realizing that he's pursuing us for the purpose of wanting to give his forgiveness if we would, but take it. Let me try to illustrate it this way. I'm going to, uh, let's see, is that Graham right there? Graham, can you come up here for me, Graham? I did not warn you ahead of time, but I want to try to illustrate this point. To drive home, again, the fact that he is a pursuing God. Graham, I'm going to ask you to come over here and stand right here. Actually, stand right next to me. Graham is going to represent us as believers, and I am going to represent God. Every single one of us has found ourselves in this scenario. Graham, uh, let's just say he, he makes some decisions here at Teen Winter Camp. He goes home, and as soon as he gets back to the house, he gets his cell phone back, or maybe his, his laptop or his tablet, and all those old temptations come back. You know what it's like to walk back into your bedroom. You've been away at camp where it's a new environment, uh, new patterns and you walk back into your bedroom and it's like the temptations are waiting for you. It's like you walk into a pressure. We've all been there. He walks back home and the pressures and the temptations begin to come and by that evening he falls back into the sin he thought he never would and at that point he's just been walking with God at camp but he makes that decision of disobedience and he, he takes a willful step of disobedience and take a step away from me. Go ahead, Graham. So at this point, I want you to stay, just take one step at a time. I want you to stay oriented away from me. Okay, so turn, like face that wall, okay? I want you to understand that whenever we make a decision of disobedience, a willful decision of disobedience, we have turned ourselves away from the relationship of Christ and we've taken a step away from him. Maybe the next morning, so this would be Saturday morning, he... Gets up and he doesn't spend any time with the Lord in the morning. He doesn't go back and confess. He just feels so empty. But in that emptiness, the, 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 the flesh tempts him. You know, you ought to go back and binge watch maybe on YouTube. Or go back and watch some pornography. That will make you feel better. And so he chooses to do that. Takes another step away. And you know how that. Just take one step at a time. Just one step. So come back just a little bit. And there we go. I have a short stage. So we have to manage our resources here. Okay. So he takes that step away and at this point he feels ugly. The cycle has started of of acting out and then the shame afterwards. And so by Saturday evening he's he's just ugly inside and he lashes out against his siblings and he says something unkind to his parents and now uh, he's taken another step away. Go ahead, take a full step away, there we go, Uh, from God. And at this point by Sunday morning he feels so empty and far from God. And you'll hear preachers say things like, well, if you feel far from God, who moved? Now, I understand why preachers say that because what they're trying to communicate is God didn't arbitrarily turn and walk away from you. No, you made the decision of walking away from God. And then that is true. But sometimes when you hear that phrase, you get the idea of there's a great chasm, there's a great distance between us and God and it feels so far from God. And your conclusion then is... Well, I've got to make up and get everything right and fix my problems before I can make all my way back to Jesus. But young people, that's works-based. That That is not the life of Christ. I do not believe this is what is happening when we sin against God. Look, every single one of us, all of us have experienced this feeling of distance because of making willful steps of disobedience. But come back over here, Graham. What I believe, according to the scriptures, what I believe is actually what is happening. We get back home and we make that very first decision of disobedience. We orient ourselves away from God and we take that step away. We looked at that pornography, so take a step away from me, Graham. And in this place of disobedience and feeling far from God, a pursuing God pursues you. He has not entered into your sin, but he is just one step away from you. Graham makes another decision of disobedience, willful disobedience against God. And he takes another step away in disobedience. And God takes a step closer. He's not entered into your sin, but he is pursuing you. Ask, seek, knock, come, repent, turn. All of those words are one action words. He doesn't say, okay, turn to me and then make your way back and prove that you're worthy and then come to me. That's not what he's saying. What God is trying to say is if you're in a position of unbelief and disobedience, all I want you to do is but turn and you will find that your pursuing father is right there ready to forgive. Young people, if I can put it this way, if you feel far from God, God is not far from you. Because he's always pursuing. Thank you, Graham. You can sit back down. He is a father that is longing to forgive. He is a God who is longing to pardon. And he does not. I I mentioned it last night. He says, I called sinners. So I'm not trying to get you to get your act together and come back to me. All I want you to do is turn. And I am there ready to take you by the hand. Take you by the shoulder. And lead you back through to the point of reconciliation. Let me ask you. When when a person sins and walks away from God, like the prodigal that we looked at last night, are there repercussions, are there consequences to the sin? You tell me, yes or no. Absolutely. But God is saying, I will walk with you through the repercussions, through the consequences. You don't have to get it all right before you can come to me. I want you to humble yourself so that grace can flow so I can walk with you back to the place of healing. Because he is a pursuing God. Young people, would we stop waiting till we feel forgivable? Till we feel worthy? We stop waiting until we feel like I have proved to God that I am acceptable and just go to him in our sin and our ugliness and allow a pursuing God who is constantly standing right there if I would just humble myself and realize and take and embrace everything that Christ is. See, too often we get in our heads that If this pulpit represents our sin, too often we get in our heads that our sin is in between us and God. As believers, we we, we think, okay, I've got to somehow deal with all this sin so I can get to Jesus. and, And my sin is the thing that's holding me away from Jesus. And that is not an accurate view of the scriptures. No, God is standing with you. Uh, Together, he's pursued you, and, and together, he's got his arm around you, saying, look, if you would just humble yourselves, we'll together deal with your sin. I'm not asking you to figure it out before you come to me. I'm saying, come to me, and together, we'll deal with the sin. Because he is a pursuing God. Finally, here this morning, if God is a pursuing God, it would change the way we pray, it would change the way we confess, but young people, did you know it would change the way you witness Notice in our text how God works in Ananias' life. This is my last point here and I'll be finished. God has prepared Saul... Saul, a man that I wouldn't have considered pursuing, but there is no one outside of God's reach. God pursues Saul and, and he, he brings Saul finally to a place of realizing I've been wrong all this time, and now Saul is blind, and he can't argue with the fact that Christ had just spoke to him, and now he's down in Damascus, and he's not eating or sleeping for three days, or excuse me, not eating or drinking for three days, because he's waiting to know what God's going to do. And then God comes to Ananias. Ananias is a believer. Ananias is a man who walks with God. Ananias is not a man who went out witnessing door to door to try to get a hold of Saul of Tarsus. In his mind, Saul of Tarsus is a lost cause. Saul of Tarsus is never going to get saved. But God says, well, I happen to be working on him. And Ananias, I'd like you to join me. He comes to Ananias and says, "Hey, Ananias, uh, I want you to go down to Straight Street. Okay, uh, you know Judas's house. Yes, I know Judas's house. Okay, all right, Lord, what's next?" And the Lord says, "Okay, Saul or Ananias, I want you to go down there? Uh, Saul of Tarsus is there, he's, and he's waiting for you, and he's praying." Lord, are we are, are we talking about the same guy? I'm pretty sure. I Lord, I, I, I think I've heard about this guy, and I've, last I heard, he's coming down here to kill us. I don't think he's praying, and the Lord says, "No." I'm, I've been pursuing him. Ananias, if you would be obedient, you can join me in what I'm doing. And what does Ananias do? He goes down to Straight Street, walks into Judas' house, and there Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Christians, is there ready and waiting to be saved if he's not already saved or at least to be commissioned in his new life. God uses Ananias in a powerful and magnificent way. Young people, God is working all around you. At camp, back in your home church, even in your own domestic home with your brothers and sisters, God is working and he is coming to you saying, I'm pursuing mankind. Would you join me in what I'm already doing? This summer was the very first time that God began to help me and realize that he is a pursuing God. And I began to look at this passage and say, Father, if that is true, I want to see it. See, I had read books as a kid by a man by the name of Walter Wilson. Does anybody know that name, Walter Wilson? He wrote a book called Just What the Doctor Ordered. I don't know if anybody has read that book. Brother Mike, have you read that book? Okay, Brother Mike's read this. It is, he, I think he wrote about four different books. They're all filled with soul-winning stories. The kind of soul-winning stories that, Mike, uh, that uh, Walter Wilson tells are like this. It's New Year's, it's January. He comes to New York City. He's gonna sell some wares to several customers and he he comes to New York City and he he says, now Lord, I believe you're always pursuing mankind. Show thy servant. It's It's a city of multiple millions and I don't know anyone here. Show thy servant where you are working. Walter Wilson picks up his briefcases to go down to sell his products to the customer and as he's walking down the streets of New York City, he passes a leather goods shop. And in the leather goods shop, he sees a little notebook that is just like a notebook that he was wanting to buy. And so he walks into the leather goods shop. He's just doing normal life. He walks into the leather goods shop, and, and the little German comes out behind the desk. And, and the German said, Watson, can I get for you? And he says, oh, there's a little booklet there in the window I was looking at. And so the German goes, and he grabs it and brings it to Walter Wilson. And Walter Wilson knows that God pursues mankind always. He's always on the move. Something like the fields are wet under harvest. I think that's in the scripture somewhere. And so Walter Wilson believes God's on the move, and so he he poses a very simple question to try to discern, could God be working actively in this man's life? And so he asks the man, do you have any idea what I'm going to do with that booklet? The man says, "I, I have no idea. And Walter Wilson says, it's going to be a prayer journal. And the man looks at the book, and he says, it's empty pages. This will not work for you, because in his mind, his liturgical Lutheran or Catholic perspective, your prayer book is simply reading dry prayers to God. Why would you use a blank book as a prayer book? And what Walter Wilson tells him, he says, no, no, no. What I do is I take this booklet and I write on the first page that my prayers to God. And and then on the other page, I write when he answers my prayers. This is very unusual for this little German. He's not used to that level of Christianity. He looks at Walter Wilson, looks down at the book wraps it up in the paper and charges the account and walks around. He does not hand it to Walter Wilson. He places it on the counter, grabs Walter Wilson by the collars and says, do you know God? I have searched all five boroughs since I have been in America, trying to find someone who could tell me about God and no one has told me about God. Do you know God? And by the end of the day, Walter Wilson leads that man to Christ. Because God was already pursuing a man and Walter Wilson, simply by obedience, trusting that God pursues mankind, he walked into what God was doing. And I read those kind of stories all through my growing up years and said, man, that's incredible. Walter Wilson's a super Christian. Man, that's incredible. Walter Wilson, clearly, he's got a special connection with the spirit that I don't have. Until I began to realize after I read this text that maybe Walter Wilson was simply believing the simple scriptures and acting upon it. So after preaching this message for the very first time, I'm in Atlanta. We, we, we had left the camp that I was at, and and I'm in, a, in Atlanta. Well, actually, first, I, I stopped in Charlotte. I was flying from Charlotte to Denver, and uh, I, I'm in the Charlotte airport, and I'm sitting there. It's a packed-out terminal. It was it had been a delayed flight, and so I've got my AirPods in my ears, and I'm talking on the phone to my dad, and I'm telling him about how the, the week went, and I'm just talking out loud, and I figured, well, I'm... I'm, uh, you know, it's a full terminal, but whatever. I'm just going to talk about spiritual matters. And so I'm talking with my dad about uh, the week. And he said, how camp going, Man, this is good. This is good. I said, man, the Lord's been really stirring me about this truth that God's a pursuing God. That everywhere he's working on people. See, in, in my, and in, in the way I grew up or the way I went to college was you were required to go door-to-door soul winning. And you know how door-to-door soul winning usually goes? If you don't believe God's a pursuing God, you knock on the door. Oh, hello, sir. I, I, I like to tell you about Jesus Christ. Slam. Well, you can burn in hell. If you've ever gotten mad for someone refusing your gospel, it's because you're soul winning for your sake, not soul winning for Christ's. Or you go to a door and you you knock on the door for an hour and knock, and and no one's no no one's available. No one's available. No one's available. And your conclusion is people just don't want to get saved in 2022. We've all probably done that. There have been whole ministries that have their, their soul winning tactics have been jam your foot in the door and you badger them with the gospel until they're willing to finally just not recant but uh, listen to you or they push you out the door and slam the door in your face and at that point you can write them off as reprobate. I'm just telling you young people that's not how the scripture tells us God's working. So normally I'd sit in a terminal and I'd feel pressure. Man, I gotta be witnessing. If I'm a preacher, I gotta be witnessing to all these kind of people. And like, oh man, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I'm fearful. And so, what do I do? I just sit there and I feel guilty. But this time I said, Lord, if you're pursuing God, there's somebody in this terminal that you're working on. You just show me where they are. I don't know where they are. I don't even know what they look like. You just you reveal to me where they're at. So I'm talking on the phone. Hey, they're starting to board my plane. Dad, I got to go. Okay, we'll talk to you later. End the phone call, pull my earbuds out. There's a charger plugged in here, and a lady that had been sitting next to me is getting ready to walk away. I said, Ma'am, did you drop? Is this your charger? She said, Oh, that's not my charger. That was there before I got there. I said, Okay, no problem. And she says, Hey. I said, Yes, ma'am. She goes, Are you a pastor? And she'd been hearing my conversation. And I said, Yes, ma'am, I'm a preacher. She goes, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation. And I was just so stirred by that. She said, man, the fact that God could be pursuing people, she said, man, that's magnificent. She said, I, got, I got family members that are needed, da, 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 da. And I'm thinking, Wow. Here's an opportunity, so I'm witnessing to her, we're going in the line, and, and the line's getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and, and she can't find her boarding pass, and ma'am, I, I gotta get on my plane, but here, here's a track, please read that if you can, and I get on the plane, I'm thinking, man, that's great, a lady came up to me, it was basically like, what must I do to be saved, like, that's that's incredible, I get on my plane, and I sit down, and there's a guy sitting in the window there, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll talk to him, if, if, if the Lord's prepared him, and the last person boards the plane, and it's the lady I'd been talking to. She walks all the way down the aisle and stops right by my feet. I look up and she looks at her ticket and she goes, ha, I'm seated next to you. Coincidence? Pursuit. She sits down next to me and I'll tell you, I'm not used to thinking this way. So what I did, it's a red-eye flight, put my pillow around me, put my earbuds in, nice talking to you. And I kicked back and the Holy Spirit was so, oh, he was all over me like, are you kidding? <laughs> Could I have given you a more open opportunity? Oh boy, you're right, Lord. And the natural fears start to creep in. But Lord, this is a red-eye flight. People are trying to get sleep. If I start talking to them, everybody's going to know I'm a Christian. What's the problem in that? Oh, yeah, you're right, Lord. <laughs> take my pillow off. Take my earbuds out. Tap her on the shoulder. I said, ma'am, I am sorry. I cannot let you go to sleep. <laughs> Until I ask you one more question. See, love casts out fear. And if you would love a soul because God loves a soul it will remove all anxiety. As we talk for the next two and a half hours of our flight... She had grown up Catholic, had gone to a Southern Baptist college. She's got a very eclectic past, but she had been saved as a 12-year-old in a non-denominational church, but has never been discipled. For the two and a half hours we worked, she, she had a very clear testimony of salvation, but then we, I began to work through passage after passage. She's working through bitternesses, hurts in her life she does not know how to handle, and no Catholic priest has ever been able to help her. And so I'm working through the scriptures with her, teaching her truths of Christ's healing, and that he came to heal the broken heart. And I, and I got out that plane at the end of the time going, man! God's all over the place if we would just open our eyes. I fly back from Denver. I get to Atlanta. I'm preaching at a church for two days. I'm, I'm just going to be there, uh, just two services I'm preaching there. And so we're parked in the parking lot there. Uh, 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 Billy Ingram, if you know him, that it was his church. And so I'm parked in the parking lot there. And I'm out there on outside my, my trailer, sitting in my camp chair, reading my Bible. And a, a car pulls into the parking lot. And a lot of people come in and turn around, but this car pulls into the parking lot, and when it pulls in, it's a little bit unusual because it's tilted to one side. It wasn't because it was a big boy driving. It was because it had blown a tire. And I look up there, and I see that, and, and I thought, well, I know how to change tires, and I'm a preacher, so let's just see if God's on the move. I'm not going to walk up to him and say, here, young man, you need to have a track. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live normal life, believing God is on the move, and I'm looking for every opportunity if He would simply show me where He's at work. So I walk up to the young man and I said, uh, "Hey, what's going on here, man? We blew a tire. I've Got to get my wife to work, and I don't know what I'm going to do." And I said, "You got a spare?" And it's a rough-looking car. He said, "Yeah, I got a spare." And he goes and pops up the, the hood and he pulls—or not the hood, the, the trunk—and pulls out his spare. And there's wires sticking through the rubber on the spare. He's like, man, if I could just get this two miles down the road, I'm thinking, you're not going to get this out of the driveway, man. This is going to blow as soon as you go two miles. And and, and, and I said, that's not going to work. And, and so I grabbed my wife from the trailer and said, hey, Emma, we've got a ministry opportunity. Can you take this lady to work? And so she gets in our truck. She drives him, her off to work. And, and uh, so I help the guy get off the tire. And, and we're waiting for my wife to get back because we're going to go down and get him a new tire. And So we're just standing there. He just shakes his head. He says, I can't believe this. I said, what? He goes, I just can't believe this. <laughs> I said, what's going on? He goes, you're a preacher? I said, yes, I'm a preacher. He says, man, I have always been upbeat. I always can fix my problems. He says, Joel, I fixed everything until this year. He said, this year, everything has gone wrong, and I can't fix anything. He's from Canada and he's come down on a work visa and the the American government has denied his work visa and and now he's stuck down here, cannot work, cannot pay his bills. He's getting ready to be deported back to America and everything he has ever tried to fix his problems this year, it won't work and he's struggling with depression. He said, I've never struggled with depression. He said, suicidal. He said, for a year, I've not been myself and my wife told me this morning, Joel, you need to find a preacher to talk to. He told her, he said, no, no, honey, I can work through this. She said, "Joel, I'm going to call churches in the area until I find a preacher who will talk to you. Man, that means I'm a good soul winner, doesn't it? Amen. No, it means God's a pursuing God. For the last year, God had been pursuing someone, and all this preacher did is, by the grace of God, step into what God was already doing. By the end of that morning, I'd led the man to Christ, and it was like picking fruit off a tree. What I'm trying to help us realize, young people, is to follow Christ is no bummer. It is the greatest privilege of your life because He wants you, and He's been pursuing you. Because he wants you and his family if you're not a believer. And if you are a believer, he wants you to know love, joy, and friendship. And so he's been pursuing you to use you, to bless you, to let you know friendship and healing and joy like you never thought was possible and like the world cannot offer. See, some of us look at following Christ and surrendering to Jesus and we say, it's going to cost me too much. But what I would like to say to you is, have you considered what it will cost you if you don't surrender to Christ? a pursuing God who loves you and is constantly right now this week and as you go home, he's working on you and if he blows your tire on the way home, you can have confidence it's because God loves me and he wants to do something in my life. Would you be willing to yield to the pursuit and would you be willing to join him in his pursuit of others? One of the greatest encouragements of this year is realizing my God is always pursuing people. I don't have to drum up business for him. He's doing that. He just lets me join the business can I ask you all to bow your heads with me here and close your eyes young people the illustration I used here with Graham I believe is supremely biblical would you be willing to humble yourself Maybe here at camp at Winter team Retreat, you've already done that. There's already been a, a moment this week in the preaching or outside the preaching where you've humbled yourself before the Lord. But young people, as you go home and there's a failure and your flesh wants you to hold off on confession for 24, 48 hours until you feel forgivable, would you realize and simply turn to the pursuing one Would you be willing, young people, to simply offer yourself to the Lord to join where he's working and just ask him, Lord, you open the door and I'll walk through it.